Hey everybody, it's Rajesh here. And Tane here. Welcome to our podcast, Baskets of Knowledge, Chess with a Difference. In our podcast, we invite guests from around the country and around the world to talk about how they got to where they are at the moment. It's about a journey, it's about an experience, it's about their life. Kia ora everybody. Welcome to another episode of Baskets of Knowledge. For those of you that are regular listeners, thank you for jumping on again. For those of you that are first-time listeners, welcome, and hopefully you enjoy um, our conversation today. Tane can't join us today. He apologizes because he is um, training somebody on some crazy machinery on a vineyard in Blenheim. So I don't know what that's all about, but um, it sounds like it's pretty crazy fun. So he's he apologizes. Um, so just have me today, me and my voice. And as you know, at the start, we like to talk about what we've learned in the last week. This week has been a pretty um, special week for myself because I um, I was privileged to go to a number of graduation ceremonies um, at that time of the year. And just sitting back and reflecting, listening to um, young people and their journeys as they graduate. Um, when I go to the Māori pre-grads, which are really just beautiful, you get the sense of how study and education is is regarded as a as a privilege for some for some family some final and it's a whole family experience not just a one person journey and you know sometimes we forget about that you know when you go to university or tertiary whatever it is it's not just you but it's a, a whole background of community that, that are there to back you and you know hopefully you go back and you um give back to them but also what was really powerful about this week was um for those of you that don't live in New Zealand, there's a bit of a interesting perspective with the government at the moment in terms of their view on te reo Māori and Māori practices. And just listening to these amazing Māori graduates um, who are budding the, who are just challenging the narrative of the government about why te reo and Māori and Māoridom is really um, a really integral part of um, New Zealand society. And so it's really beautiful to listen to all the rio that was being spoken, all the tikanga, um, and as someone that is an immigrant to New Zealand, it's really beautiful to think about and reflect about my time and what I should be doing as well in that space there. So yeah, that's my piece of knowledge to put into my basket as I go forward. Um, but this is not a monologue, so I am going to stop talking. And as you know, for regular listeners, we love to scour the country, scour the world for people that we think we're amazing. And as always, we think everyone is amazing, but we don't get funding for this, this podcast, so we can't get everyone on here. But the people we get on here, we think are fantastic. And I am really privileged, honored, and excited to invite our podcast guest this week, Anne, who is coming to us from Malaysia. Kia ora, Anne. Welcome to our podcast. Kia ora. Beautiful, Anne. And do you want to tell our listeners a bit about who you are and where you are at this moment in, in life? Well, actually, um, it was really great to hear you speak about graduation um, because I've recently just come from one myself. Uh, just about a month ago, I'm from the UK, so uh, I've been through a couple of moves the past the past few years, and that's why I'm back in Malaysia at the moment. Uh, but I grew up in Malaysia; uh, it's where it's where I'm from, um, and I did my high school there. Uh, I was in Otago to do my uh, two degrees in law and arts. Um, and then I stayed on in Wellington to work first as a corporate lawyer and then as a policy advisor for the New Zealand police before doing my master's and now embarking on an international-ish career. That's me yeah. in a short nutshell. Oh, beautiful. That's, that's a very humble short nutshell. And we will start right from the beginning, And So growing up in Malaysia, you know, it is, a, I, it is a very crazy, cool, culturally diverse place, but also comes with its pros and cons. 
but was it like were you coming from a place where the food is amazing there's crazy amounts of noise and there's all this liveliness to Dunedin well I mean since you mentioned the food uh, I, I was going to talk about the food anyway <laughs> you know, like, I've got a one track mind for food um, yeah. but I suppose the biggest difference uh, moving from Malaysia to a small humble town Dunedin uh, was just I suppose the, the people and uh, student life uh, in Malaysia everything's happening at once um, there's all of these um, public holidays where everyone's celebrating, you know, different cultural events and different things, and you're always having like a public holiday. Uh, and then when you come to Dunedin, it's much smaller, it's more compact, and you know, you you have to get used to going to a university. You have to get used to uh, mingling with people who you, I, I suppose, never grew up with. And I think I remember being a bit, you know, being a bit confused as to what the culture was um, I was trying to fit in and I was trying to make friends and I found it I found it difficult at first um, I actually came to Dunedin as a 17 year old so oh, I didn't wow. start in Dunedin as a first year student I started as a foundation in art student at a foundation oh, wow. center yeah. which was a little bit I suppose unconventional um, and I wasn't old enough to really rent yet because I was 17 um, and so I was staying with a host family and that, that helped, to be honest, that helped having some um, having some sort of a structure and a sort of a family life to help me ease into the life at Dunedin was great. And then I got to first year and then I tried to figure out what what the students were doing and how it was like to be the cool kids. And, you know, I, I was 18, uh, you know, high school wasn't that far away ago and I was trying to be cool. And this was back in the day when we still had couch burnings going on. So I remember looking at a burning couch and thinking like, oh, is this what, is this, is this Kiwi culture? Uh, turned out it wasn't a taco culture, not really so much of a Kiwi one, but it, it was a transition. That's for yeah, sure. It's, it's crazy because I think I came around the same time and I was blown away by, when I went, I went to, I think a cricket game or rugby game at the Carisbrook was still standing and there was couches burning. And I was like, this is really strange. <laughs> Why are people doing this here? <laughs> you, 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 and me both. Yeah. And I started thinking, like, maybe I should, should I stop burning couches to, to be cool? And I'm glad I didn't get into any of that. Yeah, crazy. Um, but, but, but let's go back a little bit. Why, why, mm -hmm. why New Zealand? Why, why Dunedin? I mean, you, as a centennial, especially, you know, because, um, as you know, those are your formative ages in your life. Why did your parents decide that, hey, this little place in the middle of nowhere is a good place for you to go to? Well, I think I need to talk about my parents' backgrounds as well, if we talk sure. about New Zealand as a whole, because yeah. my mom uh, actually studied in New Zealand in the 80s. Uh, not in Dunedin, though. She studied in Victoria. So why yes. she didn't decide to put me in Victoria is a good question. <laughs> but uh, I think she really enjoyed the uh, the city the city of Dunedin. She enjoyed how much it was a student town. And she thought it was a great compact place for us to pursue our studies. And when I say us, I mean my brother and my sister as well. So there's three of us in the family. I'm the youngest. My sister and brother were actually in Dunedin way, way before I was. And my oh, sister wow. was in the medical school. Uh, so she was doing great. She, you know, graduated from medicine. And my mom just thought, yeah, that's cool. All, all three of you can go there. So that, that, that was that, yeah. Oh, wow, crazy. So I guess it's a family legacy, you know, um, to come down to while studying New Zealand. And I guess, yeah, was it helpful that your sister was here at the time or what, had she finished up at that time? 
she had finished up at that time and so had my brother and so I I, I came pretty much by myself yeah I think my mom I should probably say that my parents visited a couple of residential colleges uh, and they really they really liked it they liked how close it was to classes and I think that was the biggest uh, influencing factor for them they wanted us to be able to get to class and to focus on our studies um, and you know, in my parents' words, Auckland has too many distractions. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, crazy. And you ended up living at St. Margaret's College, is that correct? Or did you? That's right. Yeah. Um, crazy story. I'm um, thinking about um, Malaysia. I had never met a Malaysian in my life before. I grew up in Zimbabwe. I did everything in Zimbabwe, went to university in South Africa with my first degree. And the very, very first person I met when I came to New Zealand was um, I was waiting in line at the dining hall to get some food. And the two people next to me, I was like, they were speaking this crazy English. And I was like, what is this? Like, ayo, la, la, ayo, la. And I was like, what is going on here? And um, they were the two people, first people I met when I first got to New Zealand. And they were both from Malaysia. And um, yeah, we've been friends for the last 20 odd years. So it's pretty crazy how how, how those con- the world comes to university, which is pretty crazy, you know. And, um, and I guess the same for you. Hopefully the same for you as you started navigating your, your coolness and not burning cultures. Oh, I mean, it. Uh, to to be completely honest, I wouldn't say I made like a really core solid group of friends for the first couple of years uh, of my uni life. Um, yep. Law was a pretty demanding degree in itself, and my focus was getting into second year. And I don't know how much our listeners know about the process, but it's essentially, uh, you know, they, they, they essentially only take like the top 200 students out of 600. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, and I coming from Malaysia and not having been through the New Zealand education system growing up, I was really conscious that maybe I, maybe I wasn't good enough to enter second year. I had this deep burning fear that somehow I was lacking or inadequate in some way. Uh, and so a lot of my energy just went into studying. And so for the first few years, I was not cool. There was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing conventionally, conventionally yeah. teenage cool about me. I wasn't drinking and I wasn't really partying for the first few years. But that's okay, right? That's that's what you you, you had a goal when you came here. And as you said, it's it's pretty challenging to get into into law school. Um, yeah, same thing when I went to university, so my parents were like, hey, you better knuckle down. So none of that happened in my life as well. No drinking, a bit of partying, but no drinking. And then um, it's crazy. But and why why law? Why you come from Malaysia? Was law something that's mm-hmm. always been a big part of your 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 to get you going or did you come to New Zealand and go actually wait a minute law is something I want to investigate? I was really interested in subjects and careers that really utilize language and critical thinking. Yes. Did I grow up wanting to be a lawyer? No. I mean I grew up not knowing about a lot of things and everything that has unfolded up until this point has been you know quite un- unanticipated I would say. Um, I was interested in world politics and I was interested in what was going on around the world, which was why I did a Bachelor of Arts in Politics. And law was really something that I decided to take a first year paper in. You know, I undertook the degree, I did a first year paper thinking that it would be good general knowledge, no matter what I decided to do with it. I, again, I didn't know if I was going to end up entering second year. So I, I really had no clue what was going to happen. Um, but I I found it as I did first year, I really enjoyed the papers. I enjoyed the critical thinking aspect of it. I, I, I enjoyed learning about how the world worked and how legal systems influenced it. So I got into second year and I 
carried through. Uh, it wasn't always an easy process. Um, and I can say this out loud now, there was a time where I almost failed um, an assignment in second year. It was, there, there were some dire times, you know. Um, and I, I did question myself a couple of times whether, you know, finishing was never the question once I entered the program. Yes. I was always going to knuckle down and finish it. But I questioned what I was going to do with it. I questioned where my direction was going. And uh, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that, no, that's yeah. that, that, that's so, yeah. it, it, it's, it's so true because you know a, a lot of a lot of us, a lot of young people as well, um, we we start a pro we start something, we have no idea what we're doing, and when you get into it, you go right, cool, I'm gonna finish this. It's a bit like myself, yes. and I, we have very similar parallels. When I when I did my degree, I I had no idea what I was doing. Well, that was just because it seemed to be the correct thing to do at that time, and like you, I knew I'd finish my degree. But when I was doing my degree, I was like, what am I going to do with this? Why Why am I doing this here? And it was really quite challenging and quite confronting because um, I knew I could finish it, but what's the next stage? And that's that's a whole different story for another day. But, um, you know, I, I, I love the honesty there because, you know, second year law school was pretty challenging. You know, I think some people tell me it's the hardest year of law um, at, at this at Otago University. I, I have some stories and I have some trauma stories, which I still, I still remember till this day. Uh, I, I remember being unable to really keep up with lectures. We were having some, you know, uh, quite content, content heavy lectures, which required like plenty of reading beforehand. And I couldn't, I couldn't really keep up with the volume that was just getting thrown at us like week by week. And then all in the back of your mind, you've just got this pressure, you know, knowing that everything's going to rest on like four big exams at the end of the year. And then you, you start, you start spiraling. I mean, I, I, I was spiraling. Yeah. Um, and I and then the more I spiraled, the more I struggled. Uh, there was a point in time where I think I was about eighty or ninety lectures behind. That's oh, wow. how bad it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was pretty, I, I I can talk about this freely now, um, because I've passed the process. But yeah. it was hard. It was it, it was really hard. But I think I think it's important just to speak about it because you know we have people like that. Um, they get into law school and they think it's all cruisy and all hunky dory. But I think like any profession, any degree that you do, you you have it's going to be challenging, you know, depending on how it is. But also, uh, what you mentioned there was really quite important. Um, when you start spiraling, you just keep spiraling. You know, this is this is what happens. We don't realize it until sometimes it's too late. You know, I, I see lots of young people that that when they don't reach out, it's too late. I I actually had a a Zoom call with a young man yesterday who was meant to finish his degree in now actually, but um. He started spiraling and he just went off the wagon and he failed two of his papers, which would have meant he would have finished his degree this year, but he didn't reach out for help. But it's really hard. It's easy for me to say standing on the outside and for you to speak, you know, now, but during that process, it's really quite challenging, isn't it? It's it's hard. And I think for, I don't know how it's like for different people or, or, or their families or, you know, the way they've been brought up or the culture, student culture around them, but Certainly, I grew up in quite a high-performing household, and there was always that pressure to to, to follow through. Um, and I didn't want to admit to anyone really that I was I was struggling. Um, I feared that there would be shame in it. Um, I feared that I would be perceived as not good enough. And I always had this burning desire to prove to people that I could do something once I set my mind to it. So uh, there was a sense of pride, but there was also a sense of uh, fear. I fear of being judged. So it's, sometimes yeah. it's it's hard to ask for help. It, it, it is hard. You know, human nature makes it really hard, especially like you said before, depending on the on the construct and the constraints you've been brought up in, where asking for help is sometimes seen as failure. 
whereas in some cultures asking for help is is amazing so it's really hard and everyone as you said has a different journey and a different story with that question about asking for help so and there's no right or wrong you know it's just it's just the way humans are sadly completely and i but but i think if there's one thing that i've learned from you know all, all all these years it's that if you don't ask for help no one's going to give it to you. Uh, yeah. People people can't mind read. People don't know what's going on in their life. You need to be able to reach out and ask. And it takes bravery. Yeah. It takes courage. It takes bravery. But once you've asked for that help and once it comes to you, um, no matter what form it might be, you sit back and you think, God, why did I do this earlier? Yeah. This would have been so much easier if I just asked. Um, yeah. So you, you don't know what kind of help can be offered to you as well if you don't ask for it. Yeah, and that itself is a learning process. One hundred percent. And one thing that I have reflected over my last few years is when I speak to young young people myself as well is sometimes you don't have to wait till you're in trouble. You can just ask from day one. You just say, "Hey, we have your, your manager, your supervisor, your boss that hey, this is amazing. This is amazing." And then when things get bad and you go, "This is really challenging," they go, "Oh, wait a minute. This is very unusual for producer for end to say this is challenging. I need to I need to come in and you know so." It's not, don't wait till it's too bad, just start the conversation well, well before. But again, it's easy to say now as you're much older, but as a young 17-year-old, it's a very different story altogether. You learn. You learn as you go. That's right, exactly. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> what, is, what, is, what, is, what is life in a, in, a, in a college for you, in a residential college? Was that, um, was that quite a good experience for you, or were you just focused on the study, so you just head down, get it done? It was a great experience, um, and it was... You know, it was great to the point where I decided to stay for second year uh, yeah. because St. Margaret's allowed that uh, for us at that stage. I don't know if that still is the case, um, but I enjoyed having an environment where people were around me doing different sorts of activities um, all the time. Um, I think the only challenge I had being at St. Margaret's was that most of the students there were doing health sciences. Uh, and we probably had about five or six people who were doing first year law. Uh, so we, we had this sort of, you know, pretty tight knit-ish community that struggled together and learned things together. But beyond that, you know, the conversation was always about health sciences. So we did feel a little bit like a minority, uh, but by far and large, it was good. Um, we had formal dinners, so that was nice. Um, we always had access to really cool speakers who came to speak about their lives. And, you know, it was it, was, it almost was sort of like a training ground for some of the things we would be doing later, like being able to communicate with people, being able to communicate with people who've had a completely different life experience to you, being able to socialize and, and network for professional purposes. Um, those are all things that, that that I felt like I learned a bit more in my first year at St. Margaret's. Yes, it's great. It's, it's pretty priceless, right? Living in the, living in the colleges of the whole sits and the stuff, the skills that you learn, mm -hmm. which you go, I don't need to live. I'm just going there for a room and some food, but actually it's a, a lot more than that there, which is... Oh, I mean, that helps. The, 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 having someone cook food for you really helps. Yeah. <laughs> and, washing, and, and washing your dishes, right? This is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And being um, three minutes away from a lecture theatre. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Life is, yeah, life is, life is awesome. Mm. So, and let's, let's fast forward. So, you, you I mean, yes. you do law, you, you do your politics as well, you finish up, which is which would have been a pretty amazing moment for you. Mm -hmm. um, now you, you ultimately in the in the working world did you did you get a job quite easily or was it a, a struggle for you um your first job i guess i was doing this thing where i was trying to strategize my future as much as i could yeah. so, <laughs> so i um i decided to 
see if I could get an internship, which would help me land a graduate job eventually. Uh, and that's what I did. Uh, and remember how I talked about how I was almost failing law at second year? Um, yes. That, that didn't happen. I instead got a letter saying that, oh, you were in the top 20% and you were close to entering honors, but you, you're not good enough to enter honors yet, but you can apply again next year. And I saw that and I was like, bro, now I got to get into the honors program. I got to, I got to <laughs> put in so much harder to get into the honors program because yeah. they will help me get an internship. Uh, and it, it sounds rather, you know, like it, it, it might sound a bit cliche, but that's what, I, that's exactly what I did. I got yeah. into the honors program and then really capitalized on that uh, while doing a bunch of volunteer work on the side so that I could get enough skills and experience and academic credentials to get into an internship program uh, with a law firm. So I, and that, well, that again was a hectic process because, you know, we've got this internship application season where you're just sitting out, churning out like cover letters and you don't even really know how to write a cover letter because you're in your second year of uni um, and no one's telling you how. So I, I think I sent out about 14 or 15 cover letters in that one week. And then I started getting the interviews and then got accepted into one law firm uh, who was taking on interns. And after that summer, they offered me a, uh, a graduate, you know, like a graduate, graduate law position, legal graduate. I can't even remember what it's called. Uh, they offered me one of those graduate positions. And I said, hell yeah, that is great. I will take that up. I knew it wasn't something I was going to do for, for the rest of my life. Yep. But I really needed to start somewhere, um, and that's where I decided to start. And what's what's really beautiful there is that you know you you said you strategize. You have to strategize, right? Especially in in a professional field, if you want to, if you're competing with other people, that you go, oh, wait a minute, if I need to get places somewhere, I've got to start volunteering. I've got to start doing the other things that that are gonna let me just stand up just a little bit you know sometimes it sounds like people go oh, it's pretty selfish but it's actually selfless because when you get there then you can actually make some change later on which as we'll talk about in a bit is what you ended up doing in the stuff in the cool things that you do um so i mean again it's also testament to your hard work as well you know nothing just comes easy so even though you thought you're failing into being the top 20 percent, which is really cool i'm a testament to your hard work and um and what is it like so you finish up in dunedin and then you move to wellington for your for your law practice, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And how was that? How was that experience for you um, going from a, because you know, um, I always find this funny, like university trains you for all these things and then you go to your first job and you go, I know nothing. Yeah, you, you feel like I you knew nothing. nothing. I knew <laughs> yeah. nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. I didn't yeah. even know how to draft like a proper like work appropriate or professional email. I was constantly, you know, second guessing myself. Um, I mean, one of the greatest things about uh, being in that corporate law firm was that they were going to sponsor my um, my admission to the bar. Oh, so pretty. they sponsored my legal car, my, my legal course, and they offered me the training opportunities that I needed. They rotated me around different teams, and I wanted that exposure. And I was one of those people who thought, you know, I'm not going to do this forever, but at least I can say that I've done that, and yes. I can say why I don't like it, right? Yes. Um, uh, I, I knew I knew some friends who were kicking that option right out of the door because they said like, oh, I will never work for a big corporate. And it's like, yeah, I I, I get what you're saying, but I still wanna I still wanna try anyway. Yeah. Um, and so I um, I I had to adapt. You know, the the move itself was fine. Um, I was with friends and I was with people who I knew that that was all fine. Um, but working, learning how to work. Uh, I guess eight eight hours a day was a challenge. I didn't realize how tiring it would be. I still remember that, you know, I I was constantly exhausted. 
you know, when, when you're at work, you're on the go all the time. You're constantly focusing. You're trying to absorb different things at once. You're trying to, uh, you know, be the best version of yourself. Um, it was exhausting. Yeah, and it's all day every day, yeah. right? All day. It's every all. Day. It's all day every day. It's all day every yeah. day. And as a graduate, you know, uh, it's not not really a big secret that sometimes you have to pull in extra hours over the weekend. Um, and I, I had to do that a couple of times. I wouldn't say it was the biggest. Uh, I wouldn't say that I had it worse than other people, you know, because yep. people always say things like, oh my God, corporate, you know, grad, you must be overworked all the time. It's like, there were times like that. There were also times that weren't like that. Yeah. Um, but I did that uh, for about two years and then decided to switch. And what is, what is your biggest learning in that time then, you know? So you, you, you knew, so I love that because you're like, oh, this is not what I really want to do forever, but I'm here. And, you know, I always, I always tell people, like, you can't say no to something you haven't tried. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, you can't say I don't like something, but I've never tried it because you never know. So, um, and that is a mindset I shift I had to make as well. You know, you go, oh, I don't like that, but how do you know you've never tried it before? Um, and you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to go, but once you give it a go, then you can, then you can have your opinion about it. My, my mom teaches me this thing, this concept uh, in which she says that nothing you learn is ever wasted. Uh, and I've, I've applied that consistently through my life and I still do until this day. Um, so I think my biggest takeaway from that process, three things, you've got the hard skills, you've got the soft skills, and you've got the things that you learn about yourself. The yeah. hard skills are obviously the more technical ones, you know, like job specific stuff, you know, yep. legal, legal skills. Um, the soft skills, uh, the skills you get from talking to people, meeting clients, um, being able to work together in a team, which, you know, you might not get often in university, depending on what you're doing. And then the things that you learn about yourself. Um, what is it that you like? What is it that you don't like? What are your what are your boundaries? What are your bottom lines? What can't you stand no matter what? Um, and I would say those are the three categories of things that that you learn. And and it's so true. And it's good. so true. Each each it's each yeah. each kind each kind of role teaches you those different things about you. And I love the last one because learning about yourself is. You know, you think when you finish up university, yes, I know everything about myself, but actually, you know nothing. You've been living in this world that is that is so fake. Now you go, okay, wait a minute, now it now becomes real. And then you join the police. What is that like? That's the New Zealand police, who sound like a pretty fun place to work at. Fun place, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Um, <laughs> I I use the word I, mean, I uh, use the word fun like this here. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, yeah, pretty, uh, pr pretty fun at times. Pretty, uh, pretty can be pretty challenging at times. Um, challenging in a way that's different from corporate law. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to step back two steps yes. and talk about uh, my undergraduate law honors dissertation, which was on firearms. Yes, yeah, I already had a subject matter interest, I suppose. Um, yes. But uh, the real, I suppose, the real motivating factor, which I still write in my cover letters these days, is uh, the crisis shootings that happened in yes. 2019. Uh, now, you know, we know what happened after the shootings. We know the, you know, we know some of the law changes that came through and there was like a big focus on firearms for a long time and there still is today. Um, but after that happened, I thought, damn, I need to, <laughs> I need to, I've got a calling, I've got an itch, I've got an itch to do something. Uh, and so I started looking at policy roles. I wasn't looking at police specifically because they were going through like a big hiring process and they were, you know, from what, from what I knew, there was a lot going on and they were hiring people who really had policy experience and I didn't really have that in the first place. So I was applying for policy roles in government. Uh, and a lot of that was motivated by the fact that I wanted to change. Yes. Um, and also from the fact that this had happened in New Zealand. Can I ask um, you a question? Was, was, your thesis, yeah, sure. was your thesis pre or post the 
Pretty, pretty, pretty. Oh, well, so, well, okay. so what, 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 what was the um, motivation to that topic there? That's a very I... interesting topic, especially in New Zealand, where nothing has happened in, since pre-wash shooting. That was a struggle. That was a struggle because I yeah. chose a disinterpretation topic and my friends were all kind of like, oh, cool. And I wanted yeah. to say, like, this isn't just cool. This is important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know how, how it's like when you're researching, you've got a topic you like and you just want to tell everyone about it and okay. no one wants to listen. Um, yeah. But but I, I remember doing the initial research for the dissertation and finding very little material to work with in New Zealand. Yes. Um, which I suppose is a good thing because you yeah. want to, you know, we're not, we're obviously not a country that has an extensive, extensive history of, of gun violence. I mean, yes. again, this is 2017, right? 2017. Yeah. We've had a couple of incidents, but some of it was historical in the 1980s, you know, whatever. Yes. Um, and people, people were kind of saying like, oh, we don't really have a problem. And I was like, mm, it depends how you look at it. Depends how you look at it. So I, I guess my motivating factor was that I was interested in how tools or, you know, I, I wouldn't use the word weapons because it really depends on the context of the tools, how tools can be used to shape society and how tools contribute to power and how power can be used to, you know, influence society dynamics. And I was thinking a lot, of course, about America. Yes. Uh, and so I wanted to see how that was like in a New Zealand context. And I latched onto like a 2017 parliament inquiry. Uh, and that was it. That was really it. Oh, how crazy! And how and how, how I say I say the word crazy, but what a what a coincidence! Then obviously the, the mass shooting happened, and you you this is terrible to say, but you were like a thought leader before it even happened, you know. And go wait a minute, this is crazy. And then so what did did that help you when you go to the police policy advising role? Was that something that was big for you, or you know, as I've been reading more about you doing the research, you know, I see things like. Um, Things like DNA and policing that all became really, really part of your your passion. I mean, a lot of that was also dependent on the work that they had going on. Yes, uh, totally. I, I don't, I don't, I didn't have a lot of control over what <laughs> you know what, what kind of work I could pick and choose. Um, but basically, even though my interest was in firearms, they had an opening in the criminal justice policy space, uh, and they said, you know, we can give you a role, like a temporary role for. Nine, I think nine months it was as an assistant policy advisor role and it was going to be a you know it was going to be a shift from my stable law role to something else temporary and they said yep. you know this is what we can offer you and I said hell yeah this is great I'll take I'll take the chance um, and even though it was only going to be temporary I decided to take it on and decided to uh, work in a space that I wasn't quite as familiar with so I wasn't as familiar with the criminal justice system in New Zealand I had done some of the standard law papers but I, I hadn't specialized in it yeah so the subject matter was quite different but I really I really enjoyed it oh, beauty and then um so as you started working in that in that space there what are some of the things that you were really passionate about as you got to, you know, firearms was your thing, but as you, as you said, as you start getting these little projects, you start seeing, getting a glimpse of the world in a very different way. And um, what things just, you, as you said before, you know, you learn about yourself, you learn about things that you enjoy and don't enjoy. Was there some areas that you're like, whoa, this is, the world is a bit crazy in this space here. Um, let's, hmm. let, me, let, me, let, me, let me explore this a bit more. I really enjoyed anything that was relevant to how police interact with community. Um, yeah. I found that the perceptions of police were really different uh, depending on who I spoke to. 
I got, you know, because I, I do a lot of like travel and backpacking as well. And so when I speak to people, sometimes I get all sorts of reactions to what I do. I get, you know, the real conspiracy kinds who are just, oh my God, the bad government, bad government, bad police, bad. Uh, which, you know, if you talk to them, you can understand where they're coming from as well. Totally. Uh, okay. to, to the standard, you know, like civil service workers who go, like, oh, okay, cool. This is a role. This is cool. Um, so I really wanted to explore that dynamic more. Uh, and so we, you know, I mean, I, I got to work on things like, you know, prison policies, um, you know, one or two aspects of community policing. Um, some of the stuff that I worked on was a bit more niche, you know, like DNA, uh, the child sex offender register. Um, some of it was a bit more controversial, all, all sorts. Uh, DNA had a strong relation with, you know, the community as well. Um, but I would say that... Do you want to tell, tell us about that? Just about the DNA? Pick, pick, pick yeah, 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 sure, sure. Um, so there was a law commissioner report that was being, like a law commission report that was being prepared on uh, the use of DNA in, in policing. So that goes from everything from like storage to retention to how it's collected. Uh, and so there were, you know, a lot of uh, police relevant aspects to that. And so the law commission was consulting us on those particular aspects. And so a lot of my role was going around uh, to different stakeholders within police, talking to them about it and getting their views and feedback and then passing them onto the Royal Commission through a series of meetings. Um, and it, I, obviously I didn't do that alone. <laughs> I, I was always with the guidance of a, you know, of, of a senior policy with my team, uh, other experts who were, you know, some of them who, some of them were the ones doing the, the actual forensic science. Um, and that was interesting because they had a very science heavy view of things and I had a you know policy view of things and so we had to talk together and collaborate and you know come up with a view that was consistent in which we could put back to the Royal Commission and the Law Commissioner at that time who was working on the project was uh, Donna Buckingham who yes. was the who was at the law faculty when I was a student so yes. she knew she knew who I was and I knew who she was and when we first met it was like oh Donna so that was that was great um a very fascinating project um i am i haven't really kept up to date uh with the project since i left new zealand and i'm not really sure where it's at, at this point in time um, i think the results were going to be tabled in parliament and i i don't know if that happened oh well but, but it's, it's great to be part of that, that process as it got started when you when you were involved in it which is, which is you know you know all these things take time but they've got to start somewhere it's pretty awesome that you got, mm -hmm. got we're, we're in there at the start. One of the cool things I've also read about is that you were, um, when you were working at the police, you were also a patroller with the community patrols. That would have been an interesting part of your interesting role that you took on. Very, very interesting. And I, I mean, the main motivation for me doing that was because I uh, felt like I was doing policy in an office uh, without having much uh, engagement on the ground at all. Uh, and it wasn't like I could just hop on a police car and go on a, on a patrol and I had to do it some other way. And so the next best or the next closest thing I could find to frontline experience that was relevant to my policy role was um, community patrols. Um, the process, I mean, I, I got in touch and I attended some meetings and then they, you know, I fill out some forms and I had to go through a couple of, you know, uh, like training, training patrols. Yes. Uh, with the with, with the lead guy who was doing it um, before I could, you know, become like a fully fledged member, um, it was it was interesting. I, there were times where I got a little bit a little bit scared, um, and when I say scared, I don't mean um, scared of the people. I mean scared of 
you know, driving around like some of the, you know, um, exposed areas in Wellington at night. It's not, sometimes it gets really windy and we would yes. just be on this huge car and the wind would be blowing onto us and the roads are narrow. I was scared about things like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but we saw, you know, we saw a bunch of different things. We saw, uh, we saw boy racers. We saw, um, uh, we, we never saw anything that was too, too dangerous, I would yeah. say. The things we saw were more things that uh, people would consider a nuisance. But it was our role to, you know, like liaise with the police, we liaise with the council on anything, um, anything that needed to be brought to attention. So th th there was a lot of skills that you could get, you know, like, which is like operating in real time and having to act under pressure and decision making at that moment. Um, and I think it gave me a bit of a bit of perspective as to how it was like to operate on frontline conditions when you have to make like split second decisions. Yeah, and and how long did you do that for? I mean, how how often were you on community patrol? Was it every day, every two weeks, every? Uh, once a month, uh, okay. and the reason why I couldn't do it more often was because the patrols ran from seven thirty p.m. to two a.m. sometimes to three or four a.m. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, I was working full time, and I was it was I I found it quite tiring uh, if I were to do it a bit too much, so uh, once per month was the was the minimum. Yes. So I I did it once per month uh, and attended your monthly meetings as well. We would share information and collaborate with uh, other patrollers, members of the police. Um, so how long I did it for? A couple of years. Yep. Like two. Awesome. I can't really yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah, but and I think you know, um, as I was reading about you as well, you were recognized by the um, by the city council and the police by in twenty twenty. That would have been quite nice when they awarded you a certificate of appreciation. Uh, it was a it was a fairly straightforward thing. It was just something that was recognizing my volunteer record. Yeah, but it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty I, nice. It's pretty nice, though, right, to get that someone to appreciate it. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah. I every time I get discouraged about about my life, I look at it <laughs> just to remind myself that there's something important to my heart which I can hold on to. Um, yeah. It uh, it was something unexpected. Yeah, it was a volunteer record. It came, it came actually from Camera Base um, because uh, Camera Base was something that I was interested in doing before Community Patrols. Yes. Uh, they ended up swapping those roles out for paid roles from the yeah. council. So it wasn't a volunteer thing anymore. Gotcha. Uh, and so they, you know, I, I got the certificate of appreciation for, for that. I, I don't oh. think I, I, I wouldn't say that I did anything magnificent. <laughs> Didn't solve any cool cases. Wasn't a detective. Oh, that's 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 like not that. that's not that's not for you to decide, right? It's the other way. Yeah, no. We think we think we think you're pretty awesome, and that's you know that's the important thing, right? And others oh, think you're pretty awesome. Um, and then you you've left New you left New Zealand. Well, and then you headed back home. Was it correct? Is that correct after your your time in New Zealand with the police? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, there was a point in time during COVID. I was really struggling as to what I wanted to do next and how yes. I wanted to continue developing. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed my role in the New Zealand police, but I just, I, but I wanted to see what other people were doing in the world. And I yes. wanted to see how problem solving was carried out in different regions of the world. And so I had this thought, I was like, I'm gonna do some further, further study. And there was another motivation for that. I wanted to eventually see if I could get into international organizations, but for places like the UN, 
they do ask for a master's degree, you know, some sort of postgraduate qualification. Uh, and the postgraduate qualification actually stands for two years of work experience. So oh, there was some yeah. value in me getting that. And so I started doing a bit of research and I tossed up whether I wanted to do like a, a master's of law, whether I wanted to do something like public policy. Uh, and when the statement writing came a lot easier for public policy, I knew that was the one that I should get into. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I threw out I, I, I threw out two applications. So I applied for Oxford and I applied for Cambridge and I got accepted into both. Um, yeah. And then I decided to, to, go to, to go to Oxford to do my master's, uh, which in itself was, my God, another, <laughs> another whole story that I can get into. Um, and that's what my recent graduation was, was from my master's at, at Oxford. Yeah. Yeah, congratulations. That, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, first of all, well done getting in. Secondly, congratulations on finishing the journey. But, um, Maybe a bit of a glimpse into into the um the story, the the crazy story of, of that the journey, if you have some time to talk about that. Yeah, sure, of course. Um I was a lot of it was not glamorous. I yep. was staying up till really late at night doing my personal statements. And in addition, they wanted like a piece of policy work, some kind of written work, uh, as part of your application, because I wasn't born in New Zealand. Uh, I had to do an IELTS. English test, which I just oh, thought wow. was an absolute waste of my time and money, but I had to do it anyway. So there were a yeah. lot of bureaucratic aspects which I couldn't get away from. Uh, I had to do all the research, and a lot of that was done during COVID. So you know, I was spending all my days being at home, do you know, working from home, and then after work I would have dinner and then go back to my laptop. And yeah, you know, that, that that was that was a time. I was also. Um, Another big part of my life is running. So I do a lot of running and I was training for my next big goal of an ultra marathon that was, you know, that, that was somehow still happening uh, despite the COVID restrictions. And so I was playing playing off these two roles against each other. I was like, during my ultra marathon training, I would think about applying for these yeah. unis. And then while I was applying for these unis, I would say, like, okay, I'm just going to do a run and get it all out afterwards. So I was... Yeah. I was really just hanging on for for a lot of it, uh, a lot of coffee, a lot of, uh, you know, sending things off to people and saying, please, can you just look at this for me? Thank you for your time. And your yeah. feedback is much appreciated. So there was a lot of that and then a lot of waiting. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, bit of a sidetrack. Tell us about the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Did you end up doing it? I did. I did. Yeah. Um, it was it was one that was at Hawke's Bay, 52 oh, yeah. kilometers. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And how did you feel when you accomplished it? Pretty damn tired because it took almost a whole day. Um, I'm, I, seeing word, I'm, I'm seeing the word tired appear quite a bit here and in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, oh man, it was, uh, tiredness is the theme of you know, it, it's the theme of uh, I, I wish it wouldn't always have to be that way, but um, you know, th th there was tiredness from physical exhaustion, but also just uh, like emotional Mental. exhaustion, and, and and I think that was a pretty common experience for everyone during COVID. And yeah. yeah, but the, the ultra marathon. So I started running uh, and after I did my first marathon in Rotorua in 2020, 2020, October 2020, I said, oh, you know what I can do? I can go to an ultra marathon. Um, the, 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 training was, the training was more exhausting than the actual race, I would say. 100%, 100%. And it was training during lockdown. So I had to be quite, you know, specific with where I did it and, you know, how, how I did it. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, but, but well done, you. Well Thank done, you. yeah. I mean, that, that's oh, a good. pretty that, that's a pretty awesome achievement. Fifty-two kilometers. Um, 
Yeah, it's amazing, amazing. So you, I mean, well done. And then you obviously got your offer, you got accepted, and then you started your master's of public policy with, with um, yes, yeah, with the school. And how was that? What is it? I mean, was that a two-year program, three-year program in person, a research-based? What is if for someone as naive uh, as me? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, it's a one-year program. Uh, it's a taught master's. So it's not uh, a research focused one. So I did do uh, like a like a project report, but I didn't do a huge you know dissertation like what I did for my undergrad. Um, and a huge part of that master's was a summer project in which you had to secure a summer project by yourself uh, and carry out work with your organization um, and produce some work with with them. Um, and that, that, that was a key part of it. And the reason why I ended up going with the Oxford program over the Cambridge one was because the Oxford program was a one-year program yes. and the Cambridge one was nine months. Um, gotcha. And so the Cambridge program had a some I had like a project period that was far shorter and more compressed. And I decided I wanted more time for that experience. Yeah. Sounds awesome, yeah. It's great, yeah. great to have the choice there. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I remember when you were, when you were doing your, your masters, um on link on linkedin you put up a post about um jacinda Ardern and the her, leader, her leadership um what is what's what promoted you to write that because it was a really great article and um i really enjoyed reading it oh, oh you read it oh yeah you read it thank you thank you um so I, I i guess first and foremost i was also doing the strategizing thing where i was trying to build up i guess uh some kind of repertoire of writing examples for myself so i had a dissertation but i needed something that was more uh sort of like academic based but also geared to the to the general public you know yes uh and our program had that they had a blog and they were inviting people to publish on it and so i was also looking out for things that i was really interested in when um announced her resignation i thought here we go, here we go. There's a chance for me to write something about it um, and to do a bit of, you know, I guess, critical scoping as to what might happen next uh, with her absence. And so I pitched the article, I, you know, our, our communications team, and they said yes, and I wrote it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's the inception. Nothing yeah, too fancy. But it was really great because it's a really great article, very, very well thought out. And, um, you know, I will put it in the, in the, in the show notes and we can read it as well because I think it's, it's a pretty interesting perspective on when a leader leaves, what happens next. Um, and as I said at the start, the country is a bit of a turmoil at the moment, but it's interesting, you know, when, when the when the vac vacuum happens. Um, and then um, following your little career journey that's, that's out there in, in the world to see, mm -hmm. um, the anti-corruption team, tell us about that, the internship with that. How is, what is that like? In, in Thailand, right? Um, uh, oh my, I was just trying to think of the words to describe it because I mean that that itself was pretty recent, so I I feel like I'm still pro processing it almost. Um, I I loved it. Yeah. I think if you want my blatant honesty, I I, I loved it. And the, only, the the unfortunate part of it was that United Nations internships are unpaid. unpaid. Yep. And and that's not that that's not just for my organization, the UN Office of, on Drugs and Crime. It was the same for. A lot of other UN entities, yes. and that's a huge structural problem that needs to be fixed because you, yeah, yes. you, know, you, you gotta you gotta pay your interns, you know. You, you yeah. do, you know. But you know, I wanted the experience, and I was able to. I, I I'm going to be honest. I was able to get by with financial assistance from family. But if I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have been able to 
to, to, to do it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it, that um, lasted it, for three months. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, when I, um, I was also offered an internship with mm -hmm. um, the World Health Organization in, mm -hmm. when I finished my master's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was in Copenhagen and there was no way I could afford it. There was a zero way I could afford it in Copenhagen. And I, and I had to say no, you know, I had to say no because there was, there was no way it could be done. And as you said, you know, it's a, it's a problem with the Institute because you do the hard work, but, you know, experience is amazing, but experience doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't pay the bills. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think there's a saying where uh, there's a saying where it's like, do the mahi, get the treats. But in this yeah. this case, there was no treats. It was just, <laughs> it was mahi, just like, straight up, straight up mahi. Um, and, and you pay for the treats, right, as well? <laughs> you do, you do. I mean, I mean the, the, the fortunate thing was that I was in, in Thailand, yes. uh, where the cost of living was uh, much lower compared to cities like Paris or yes. uh, Copenhagen. You were saying Copenhagen, but yeah. I had friends who were in Paris and who really struggled. Yes. Uh, or people who were, you know, in different parts of, of Europe. Um, uh, you know, I had, I had classmates who were going to Rwanda and even the flight tickets themselves cost a bomb, you know. Yeah. So I, I was grateful to be, to be in Thailand um, and I was working with someone, um, her, her, name, her name is Annika and she was also an alumni of the school. Uh, and that's how we got in touch uh, in the first place. I started oh, by wow. sending it. I sent out an email and that's how I started getting in touch with her. Uh, I was sending out emails left, right and center anyway, just seeing what would, what would happen from that. Um, but it was a fantastic experience. I got to do a lot of um, writing on issues that I cared about. I got to work on countries that I never dreamt of, that, you know, dreamt that I'll be working on. So I got to work on, you know, uh, Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste. Uh, oh, wow. It was, it was awesome. It was just like a great, overview of what what was going on on anti-corruption work in that space um and i'm actually continuing with that i um i haven't updated it on linkedin yet because it's i'm in an awkward space where i'm waiting for like the the contract the formal, to, the formal, to yeah. yeah 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 but uh, I'm, I'm coming on as a consultant with them um awesome. yeah so that's, that's turned out well thank you congratulations thank you. yeah and you know i think anti-corruption is, is must be so crazy um for you to see because you know the world is a uh, the world is here and there's a world behind it as well. And you would be seeing the, the behind the scenes of how the world operates. Very much so. And I think the UN kind of, you know, operates as a monolith, it can operate as like a monolith entity from other people's views. Uh, and often you don't have the chance to see what goes on. Uh, yeah. yeah. Behind the scenes, as you say. Uh, yeah. And it's all people, you know, like it's, they're normal people like you and I just doing, doing their work and talking to people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And what and what is like what is life in Thailand like? I mean, that would be pretty pretty fun as well. It was it was amazing. It, it was yeah. amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I really enjoyed um I guess coming back to Southeast Asia again. Yes. Um, the weather was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, after being in the UK winter for months, uh, the food was fantastic. Um, the cost of living was also a big a big bonus. Um, I loved it. I was I got involved in you know I I did two half marathons while I was there. Oh, wow. I stayed in hostels, you know, to to save on living costs. Uh, I I was doing what I could to make it work for myself. I I networked a bit. I reached out to people. Uh, I reached out to people on LinkedIn who were in Thailand and who had like New Zealand connections. So I reached out to people at the New Zealand embassy. Uh, I discovered that a colleague from New Zealand police was in Thailand and he was someone who I who I used to work with. So I met up with. I was doing a lot of things yeah. apart from just going to the UN building and working. <laughs> 
And I think, and I think, I think that that's that's a key thing that's come through this whole conversation is the is the networking, and you have to leverage your you have to leverage your network, right? And you have to go, okay, cool, I have to do this because um, the world is a is a small place if you make it small, but it's also a big place if you make it big. But once you network, that big mm-hmm. bigness becomes really really small. So um, why not, right? Why not just use the power of LinkedIn and networking? Oh, oh, thing, oh, absolutely. The worst thing someone says no, right? I don't want to see you, and go away. That's the worst they could say. Mm-hmm. The worst that someone could say. The worst that someone could say is no. I don't want. I can't help you. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, and absolutely. And I think you, you do need a bit of a thick skin to to you know to to absorb all of that. You know, yeah. and you can't view it as rejection. Um, yeah. You can't take it personally. You know, you okay. you can only you can only think about you know the constraints that the people are under, and you know maybe they they they've got reasons of your own. They they've got their own positions to be in, but uh, yeah, you you just have to give it a go. Totally, and oh, know no, you back. Yeah, the, the, the worst is a no or a no response, and that's, that's right, about exactly. it. And, I, I, and I've had plenty of no responses in the past. Exactly, and yeah. I think that that's important to remember because you know it all sounds like everything's hunky dory, but hey, we don't talk about those no's. We don't talk about those hard times where you just get no no response or rejection, and you know it's just part of life. And whatever will happen will happen if you just keep persevering, as long as you don't quit. Right. The 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 one thing I would say is that you know every rejection always feels fresh. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I, I I might talk a lot about this mindset that I have, but I I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna be real, you know, when when a rejection comes, it still hurts, you know, it hurts us, you know, it hurts like day one, yeah. Uh, and you know, and over time, it reduces and it lessens, and then you get the strength to try again for something else. But you know, it's it, it's okay to feel to feel upset about it. You know, it's okay, okay. to feel to feel pessimistic. You know, for for a while, you know, I, I think the more important skill is being able to get back and back up and trying again. That's right. Um, which is the which is the hard bit, right? That's the hard bit, or the the, the, the more challenging bit. Um, and as a seventh, what would if I said to you when you were seventeen years old, hey, and you're seventeen now, in ten years time you will be um, back in Malaysia, but in during that time you would have worked for the police, done a corporate lawyer job got a master's from Oxford University, done an anti-corruption team, done some other, all these other cool things here. What would you have said to that 17-year-old if I said that to you? We've been that's speaking that's for, completely normal. We've been speaking for almost an hour. Can you believe that? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, when we oh. first started, we're like, oh, we were like, oh, we're not going to talk for an hour, but we've done that really well. I mean, there's so much we can delve into, so much we can talk into. I mean, there's, um, your life experiences are pretty amazing. But I think for me, what's really stood out is that you've planned things out and you know, not that it's always worked out, but it's given you some ideas, but the networking. But, um, and I'm just going to round off the podcast um, because I know it's it's a lunchtime there for you in Malaysia as well. It's 1 p.m. Um, our podcast is called Baskets of Knowledge. And every week we ask our guests one question. It's the same question. And our question for you is, what piece of knowledge would you like us to put into our basket of knowledge given your experiences? And it could be anything from professional life, personal life, your growth, Anything, and you can you can have two, and you can have two. We'll give you two two baskets of two lessons about a basket of knowledge. A question about the knowledge that I want to pass on to the yes, basket. Yes, pass on. Yes, okay. yes. I think my, my 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 advice is to dream big, but be realistic about how you want to go about achieving it. Because unfortunately, we live in a world where there's too many constraints and sometimes we have all these magnif- magnificent things you want to do and you want to go out there and scream to the world give me a chance i just want someone one person to look at me to you know to to, 
to, to take me on for the first time. Um, and that's not going that's not going to happen until you invest some time into thinking about how you're going to go about it. And look, you might be in a position where you might have more resources than others. You might be in a fortunate position where you know you, you might already know someone or you've got a parent or a friend who can refer you to to all these resources. But for a lot of us, we we do have to start from scratch with no connections, no nothing. And it's a step-by-step -step process. But from those steps, you can figure out where you want to be. Uh, and that's my biggest takeaway from the past 10 years of my life. I love that. I love that, you know, um, you hear about this all the time that you, you dream big, but break it right down to that first step. And um, one of, one of one favorite thing that I like to have is every step is a first step. Every time you take a step, it's the first step into, it's the first step, you know, we always talk about that. Every step is a first step, which is really beautiful. It's when you, it's when, like I said before, when you don't, when you choose not to take that step, that you're not going anywhere. So um, that's a fantastic learning. Dream, dream big, but also be realistic. Beautiful. And any any last few words before we round off the podcast? Anything that you'd like to add that that I might have missed in your um, amazing story so far? I think another thing that I was just going to add is that you know I talk a lot about what I've done, but I wouldn't have been able to be here without the support of people around me. I wouldn't have been able to be here without the people who have done referrals for me, who have written me letters or recommendations, who have believed in me, my my parents. I mean, I couldn't have done half the things that I, I'm doing now without without them, you know, without their, um, I guess, their persistent encouragement, even though it was a little strict when I was growing up, um, uh, or, or, or my friends or the people who, I don't, I don't know, you know, stood up, stood up and believed, you know, stood up for me, believed in me. I, I have been helped along in so many different ways that I can't even express. And I I would say pay it forward. When someone expresses the kind of help, when someone helps you, when they've given you some form of kindness, pay it forward because you don't know what kind of difference you can make in someone else's life. Really, you know, it might be small for you. You know, you might say, like, oh, you know, just introducing so and so to someone, it's not a big, you know, not a big time of commitment. I can it might mean the world to someone. It might change their lives. You you really don't know. So help people if I, you can. I love that, you know, paid forward. And, it, and it's a beautiful circle back right to when I started in my little monologue at the start when I spoke about, you know, at these graduations, you see the whole family, the whole whanau. And as you said, this journey you've taken, is it, it doesn't happen by yourself. And I think that's important, you know, like you said at the start, you've got to ask for help. Also, those around you that are there to help you. They're those that write your, your reference letters. They're those that do your readings of your um, legal articles. They're those that, that jump in and say, hey, um, when are you going to have lunch? When are you have dinner? Well, let's go. You know, all those little things which do add up. So I love that. And, you know, paying it forward is something that, you know, we should all just do no matter what. It's just, um, as you said, Absolutely. one small thing could be a massive thing in someone else's life, which is really beautiful. And um, which is why I really appreciate you jumping on here because I, I jumped on and I said, hey, and jump on and you didn't hesitate you're like cool let's go on because um i really appreciate it so thank you thank you so much for that i really appreciate it and i appreciate your time as well um thank you. yeah so thank and this has been a fantastic conversation it's been i i'm pretty humbled and really privileged to hear your story um oh before we go what's your favorite food mm. you know we spoke about food being your being a big theme in your central part of your life anything that stands out for you as Anne's favorite go-to food i'm going to introduce to you uh the asam laksa which is oh. a, a dish in Malaysia, but there are different versions of it, you know, and so the one that you must always have is a northern style. Northern style. Everything what's, what's... else is not as good. <laughs> oh, you heard here, the, one, the northern 
Awesome Luxa. All right, cool. That's it done. <laughs> Gotta go to Malaysia for that. Beautiful. Um, so much learning here today, so much to talk to take away so much of myself. I've learned a lot today. For our listeners out there, hopefully you have um learned something today. If you haven't learned something today, you haven't listened to this podcast, go back and listen again because I promise you there's some amazing pieces of knowledge in today's podcast. Um, thank you, Ant, for jumping on. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I can't wait to see what else is next for you because yeah, every every time I looked at your LinkedIn stuff, I'm like, this is pretty cool. But obviously, this is just a small step snapshot of your life. Um, so yeah, keep up the running. Um, that's inspired me to get moving again. So thank you very much. Um, and to our listeners, till next time, don't forget to put something in your basket of knowledge. Till then, keep safe, um, keep smiling, and it's and said, paid forward. Kakite, bye everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Baskets of Knowledge. Yeah, we hope that you found something useful to put into your basket of knowledge. And as we said before, remember to put something little into your baskets of knowledge every week. And as always, feel free to like, comment, and share this podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye.